0: in 1 John 2, verses 1 through 6. I want to read our passage this morning before we get started. Let's hear from the Word of God. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So we've been going through 1 John. 1 John is a letter written to Christians. And last Sunday, Pastor Doug took us through chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. He showed us that God is perfectly holy, pure. God is light, the one in whom there is no darkness. That's who God is. That's his, his character. And because of this, he, he can't coexist with darkness or evil. He can't coexist with sin. And so John says, if we're going to say we have fellowship with God... We need to walk in the light. And John gives us a warning. He says if we say we have fellowship with God and we continue to walk in the darkness, that is, continue to live a life characterized by sin, he says that we are liars. The truth is not in us. That we're actually deceiving ourselves because we we claim fellowship with him. At the same time, our life testifies to something entirely different about us. And John made it clear that there's a sin problem with mankind, even with Christians who say they know God, and that's why he tells them it's a, it's a lie to say you don't sin. And if you're following along with John's thought here, you can see maybe there's a problem shaping up in the mind of those who hear it. You can imagine him saying, John, you say that if I have fellowship with God, I've got to walk in the light as God does, but if I say I don't sin, I'm a liar, and the truth is not in me. So I know I'm going to struggle with sin, And that's why you tell me to confess that sin to God and he is faithful and just to forgive me and cleanse me. But John, how can I know that I know him and can have fellowship with him if there's still darkness in my life, in parts of my life, if I still struggle with sin and don't don't always walk in the light? And you and I can have that same problem, can't we? When sin seems to get the upper hand, when we seem to be stuck in a stubborn sin pattern. What can happen to us? We can sink into despair, can't we? And start to think that, that God, that Jesus must be looking down at us and shaking his head and a furled brow saying, oh, that guy, he's hopeless. We think maybe he, he wants nothing to do with us anymore. Maybe, maybe he doesn't even want to help us. And why would he? We think, look at the sin in my life. Maybe I really don't know Jesus. Maybe I really don't have fellowship with God causes doubts, and these can plague us. They can plague us, whether we say it out loud to one another or not. And I think this passage this morning is is precisely the passage to help us with this very issue, to think about this rightly. It answers the question, how can I know that I can have fellowship with God even when there is remaining sin in my life? In 1 John 2, 1 through 6, John's going to give us three truths that give us assurance that we can have fellowship with God. let to remember three words advocacy, atonement, allegiance. Advocacy, atonement, allegiance. Advocacy is that Jesus is our advocate before the Father when we sin. Atonement is that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And allegiance means this obedience to God is the evidence. Of knowing him. Look with me again at the first verse in our passage this morning. John writes, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, John, ever the elder apostle and shepherd, starts off by addressing them as his little children. It's a phrase that tells them of his great love for them and his concern for their spiritual well being. But it also probably is something they should understand as, meaning they should heed his words as a child should to a father. And John's concern, he says it right off. We can say it's that they walk in the light. He says, because, he says I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And when he says these things, he's referencing what he's, he's already written, that to have fellowship with God, they need to walk in the light. So in verse 1, John says he's writing so that they may not sin, and then he says, but if anyone does sin, and it might sound to us like he's saying, look, I I don't want you to sin, but just in case you do. But that's actually not what he's saying. See, and I'm going to nerd out a bit on the Greek here just for a moment. (laughs) John uses a specific type of conditional Greek sentence here. It's a conditional Greek sentence that expresses a hypothetical situation which is assumed to be true. So what John is saying is, I don't want you to sin, but you're gonna. You're gonna do it. John's being clear. And this is a truth that you and I probably are all too familiar with, aren't we? We follow Jesus, and yet we still struggle with sin in our lives. Is there anyone among us this morning that calls himself a Christian that doesn't struggle with sin still in their life? Of course not. And to be clear about the verb John uses for the word sin, to know what he means when he says it, the sin refers to an individual act of sin, not a habitual pattern of sinning. So while he says he knows they're going to sin, what he doesn't have in view here is habitual and repentant sin. All right, so this is our first point, advocacy, as I said. Jesus is our advocate before the Father when we sin. So let's go back to the end of verse 1. And he said, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So he calls him an advocate, and that simply means one who pleads another's cause or one who intercedes for another person with someone else. And the verb have is in the present active indicative tense, meaning it's an ongoing, continual action. In other words, John says you're going to sin, but take heart. You can still have fellowship with God because Jesus is going to, in an ongoing way, plead your cause with the Father when you do. So I'm not at you if you ever wondered what Jesus is up to up in heaven, right? Right now, he's pleading your cause before the Father when you sin. And he's pleading before a father who loves his children and desires to forgive them. And unlike our friends sometimes when we need help who say, I can't do it right now, I'm a little busy, maybe I can get to it next week, Jesus is never too busy to help you. He's available 24 hours a day, seven days a week always available to intercede for you, to plead your cause before the Father. He never tires of doing it. And he's always eager to come to your defense. And you'll notice that in verse 2 that John calls him Jesus Christ the righteous. John wants us to know that one of the reasons that Jesus can stand before the Father and plead our cause when we sin is because of his perfect righteousness, not ours. Jesus always did the Father's will, perfectly obedient, perfectly sinless, even unto his own death. Only he can stand before a holy God on our behalf and plead our case. And why? Because he always walked in the light. And when he pleads our case, he, he doesn't say to the father, Father, for, forgive him, he's a pretty good person, he's not perfect, but hey, who is? He doesn't say, forgive her, Father. She got it mostly right. Now that, that assumes that somehow, somewhere, that when he pleads our cause, it's based on our works, our righteousness. And we don't have any of that to stand before a holy God. Scripture is clear. We're all sinners who fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23, that no one is righteous, no one. Romans 3.10. No, Jesus stands before the Father pleading your cause based on his righteousness. So brothers and sisters, we need Jesus every day to intercede for us, to plead our cause before the Father based on his righteousness, not ours when we sin. And because he is righteous, He will always do what Scripture says he will do. He will always, always intercede for you. And the God of light, who is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all righteousness, extends mercy and grace to you because he sees you in Christ. He sees you in Christ, the righteous one who died on a cross for your sins. But here's, I think, the problem for us, right? We, we don't always live in the good of that truth, do we? When we feel stuck in a sin pattern, we can fall in the trap of, of thinking that Jesus is disappointed in us and he doesn't want anything to do with us. Some folks imagine him looking down on them with that furrowed brow and we wonder why he would even help us. And that's often because in the darkness of our own thought life, we still think somewhere that our performance somehow affects our relationship with him. Christian, you need to believe what God says about you. You need to believe that you have an advocate before the Father who, rather than turning away from you when you sin, turns to you. He draws near. Jesus, your your older brother and friend, comes to your defense and pleads your cause. He pleads your cause not not on your merits or mine, but on his righteousness and on his atoning sacrifice on the cross. And that brings us to our, our second truth this morning of why we can have assurance that we can have fellowship with God. And that's because Jesus is our atoning sacrifice. Look with me again at verse two. John writes, he is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now scripture teaches us this truth, that God hates sin and his wrath, his holy and just anger towards sin, is on all ungodliness and unrighteousness in mankind. Romans 1:18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And God's just wrath against sin must be satisfied for us to be reconciled to him and to have fellowship with him. He hates sin and consequently he has to judge it. There must be a penalty paid for the sin for us to be truly reconciled to him to have fellowship with him. And in verse two, John wants us to know that this problem has been solved by God through the atoning sacrifice of his son. That Jesus, that Jesus satisfied God's just and holy wrath against sin on our behalf. John says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Now, the word propitiation, if I'm being honest, is a big, clunky theological word, right? A little hard to understand. The word in the original language is halasmos, and it simply means this. An act or an offering that appeases or satisfies the wrath of God against sin. John says Jesus is the propitiation that he is the sacrificial offering that satisfied the wrath of God against our sin. And John uses the present active indicative verb again to mean it is a continual ongoing action. That means, that means he continues to be in an ongoing way the once for all sacrifice that paid the penalty for your sins and satisfied the holy and just wrath of God, his anger towards you for your past sins, for the sin you're going to commit today, and for the sins you're going to commit tomorrow. And the cumulative teaching of John here, starting in verse 7 of chapter 1, is that his blood cleanses us from sin. And in chapter 2, verse 2, that Jesus' death atoned for our sins, that is, it cleansed us of our sins and paid the penalty that was due for them, satisfying his wrath against us. We have peace with God. And that's why some translations translate that Greek word, halasmos, as atoning sacrifice, to bring more clarity. Commentator Ben Witherington says it well, writing, we are correct to use the translation atonement or atoning sacrifice, recognizing that while propitiation is clearly implied in 1 John 2, the focus is on the benefits of the sacrifice for the sinner, Cleansing and forgiveness. In the end, it's not an either-or matter for both propitiation and expiation. The cleansing of sin, expiation, are necessary to take care of the sin problem and reconcile God and humankind. So when Jesus stands before the Father to plead your cause when you sin. He stands there as the righteous one who paid the price for your sins. He stands there as a righteous one who satisfied the wrath of God on your behalf and brought peace, not enmity, between you and God. Something that none of us can do for ourselves. That only he could accomplish. And brothers and sisters, this is how you can have assurance that you can have fellowship with God, even when the remnants of indwelling sin rear their ugly head in your life. Because Jesus was our atoning sacrifice. He paid the penalty for that sin, and he satisfied God's wrath, his anger. He reconciled us to himself through the blood of Christ. But then at the end of the, of, the, of, the, of the verse, John says something that often trips folks up. And so I want to I talk about that this morning. If you look with me at the last part of verse 2 where John, after writing that he is the, the propitiation for our sins, he says, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, I'm going to tell you what that means, and then I'm going to tell you why it means that. So what John is telling us in this phrase is that Jesus is the only means of atonement for the sins of the world. Jesus is the only means of atonement for the sins of the world. And I get that on first blush, you read this, right? It says for the whole world. and You might think that John is saying that Jesus died, satisfied God's wrath for everybody in the whole world. Everybody's going to have eternal life and everybody's going to heaven whether they profess faith in Christ or not. That's not what he's saying. That's universalism. That would include even those who deny Christ, even those who are atheists, who don't even believe in God. And it can't mean that because John himself told us in 1 John 5, 11 through 13, that God gave us eternal life and that this life is in his Son. And that having the Son means to believe in him. And he tells us the same thing in his gospel, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. Those who have fellowship with God, eternal life, are those who believe in, who trust in Jesus. And it's also tempting, right, with this, this phrase, to get drawn into the debate over Exactly who Jesus died for here. But that's, that's actually not John's point. That's not the point he's trying to make. And we should make his point, not ours, from this passage. So we have to ask the question, right? In what sense, in what sense is Jesus the propitiation for the sins of the whole world, according to John? I think we need to start with what does John mean by the word world? The word world is used about 185 times in the New Testament, right? It's cosmos in the Greek. The majority of those times, more than half, are in John's writings, his gospel and his epistles. And he, he uses it to mean all kinds of things, like the created world. He uses it to mean all people. He uses it also to mean material wealth sometimes. But most often, especially in relation to salvation, it refers to the world in darkness, or opposition to God. And that's what I think John means here by world, the world in darkness and in opposition to God. So what can we say? Well, we can say in verse 2 that it must mean at least that Jesus' atoning death on the cross was sufficient to satisfy the wrath of God for those who John was writing to in his letter and... It was also sufficient for all those in the unbelieving world who would believe through faith in Jesus and the gospel message. That means this death was sufficient. It was sufficient to deal with the sins of the world, but only applied to those who believe. But John's larger point here, the point that I think he's really trying to make, is that the whole world needs saving. And that Jesus is the unbelieving, sinful world's only means of propitiation, only means of atonement. It's only Savior. And that's the same way John uses world in 1 John 4.14 when he says the Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. But not all will believe. And I think that's why in John 17, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, he says that he doesn't pray for the world But he prays for who? Those who the Father has given him. And that's why he says in John 10 that his sheep knows his voice, but there are people who don't. Not all will be saved, but those that are believe in the name of Jesus and the penalty for their sins are paid in full and the wrath of God for them is satisfied. And this is an amazing and wonderful truth, isn't it? Right? Something that we, we need to hold fast to, especially when we find ourselves in trouble. That Jesus is our atoning sacrifice that satisfies the, the holy and just anger of God against us and our sin? We find ourselves in a, a sin pattern that seems to have a grip on our life and we can't seem to shake that. Maybe your your sin pattern is that you struggle with losing your temper with your kids or or your spouse. Or maybe you struggle with bitterness or resentment towards others. Or maybe that that nice personality you have is really just masquerading your fear of man and your people pleasing in your life. Or maybe you struggle with porn. And maybe you, you get angry with yourself when you fail to resist these temptations and fall into sin. And it's true, God calls us to put off our sin, to kill it, right? And none of us should think otherwise. And we should have godly grief when we sin. But I want you to be take heart. I want you to take heart. I do. You may be angry with yourself. But do you know who's not angry with you? Do you? The Father. The Father, Jesus paid the penalty for your sins. He satisfied God's anger towards you. Rather than being under God's wrath, you have peace with God. Rather than him being angry with you, he holds his arms wide open and he welcomes you as his children in the fellowship with him through his son. And he gives you every spiritual resource that you need, Every spiritual resource that you need to become more like Jesus. What amazing grace. But the question I think that should be in the back of our mind is how do I know I have these assurances? We've already said that we have to believe in Jesus, right? That's that's clear. That's essential. But what are the evidences of my faith that would give me assurance that I truly know God in Christ? That is, what is the fruit of my faith that shows me to be his? Beginning in verse 3, John is going to give us a, a test of sorts so that we can discern that we know God and that we have this assurance we've been talking about, that we can have fellowship with him despite the fact that we sometimes walk in the darkness, that we sometimes don't walk in the light as we should. And that's our third truth this morning. And that's allegiance. That faithful obedience to God is the evidence of knowing him. Let's read our last four verses one more time. who is trusting in Jesus at some point in our life has professed faith, right? And so you might think that John's first test, right, would be that, that you profess faith, but it's not. I think he assumes we've done that here, right? He doesn't say, by this we know that we have come to know him because we answered an altar call. Or by this, we may know that we know him because we pray to prayer or we ask Jesus into our heart. It's a far simpler test than that. John says if we're gonna talk the talk, we gotta walk the walk. That our words must be backed up by our life. He says the evidence of our faith that we savingly know Jesus is our allegiance to Christ, our faithful obedience to his commandments. John's doing here is trying to answer the question for us how can I know that I know him how can I know that I know him look down at verse three for a moment he says by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments he's talking about obedience that's the test if you talk the talk John says you should walk the walk so Christian, if you, if you want to know, if you truly know him, if you truly know God in Christ, if you're a believer, John says, look at how you live your life. Do you keep his commandments? The person I says that says, I know the Lord, John says, keeps his commandments. That's the evidence. Look down in verse four for a moment. He says, but whoever says I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. He's saying that if we, we say we know him, but we don't keep his commandments, we're a liar, our profession is not true. Now that sounds pretty absolute, doesn't it? And some of you might be thinking, well, Bob, I got a problem. Just last week I knew what God wanted me to do, and I did the opposite. I did it because I just didn't want to do what he said. Is John saying, I I don't know Jesus, that my profession was not true? Is that what he means? I don't think so. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, Christian, that you must keep his commandments perfectly or you cannot know the Lord. That would be inconsistent with John's admonition that it's a, a lie to say we have no sin. And that would be inconsistent with God's promise of forgiveness if we confess our sin. And why on earth would I need an advocate before the Father if I was able to keep God's commandments perfectly? It can't mean perfect obedience. So what is John saying? John is saying that our faith in Jesus will show itself. It will show itself in a new life of obedience to the Lord. Our claim to have saving knowledge of Jesus should demonstrate itself in a heart attitude where we strive, where we strive every day in our thoughts, in our desires, and in our actions to to live each day consistent with his word, with his commandments. And sure, we all know this this truth, that there will be times when we fall short. We should have as our hearts desire, a desire to please the Lord, a desire to keep his commandments and to be constantly striving for this in the spiritual power that he provides us. The way we know or can have assurance that we know the Lord will be evidenced by a transformed life that strives, however imperfectly, for obedience. And to know the Lord is to have a a personal and ongoing relationship with God in Christ, fellowship with Him. It's more than mere intellectual knowledge, but rather saving knowledge that manifests in your life as a desire to be obedient. But what if we don't care about obedience? What if we don't care to even know what he requires of us? What if we don't open our Bibles and even want to know what God says we should be doing? What if we prefer to continue to live our life on our terms? Well, if we profess to know Jesus savingly, to be trusting in him, and yet our life evidence is no change, evidence is no transformation, if we don't strive to keep his commandments or word, John says... We're a liar, and we don't know him. And that's a problem. That's what John's saying. If you say you know Jesus, then John's saying to examine your heart. Do you walk the talk? Ask yourself questions. Do I desire to obey God's word in my life? Do I strive to do it no matter how imperfectly it comes out? When you fall short, do you confess it to God, rest in his forgiveness, and turn from your sin to obedience and the power he supplies you? And John says there's another marker of of this obedience. He says that the person who keeps his word shows he loves him. We keep his word. John says in verse 5, that the love of God is perfected in us. The love of God is perfected in us. And here the idea is that love is seen in obedience because love delights in doing God's will. And John and his gospel, I think, give us thus the words of Jesus, which is a picture of how we should understand this in John 14, 21 and 23. Jesus says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them He it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will manifest myself to him. In verse 23, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So our our obedience to the Lord demonstrates our, our genuine, heartfelt love for him. And it shows that his love is in us. Who is the person who knows him? The person who keeps his commandments. The person who loves him. If you keep his commandments, you show yourself to love him. If you love him, you'll keep his commandments. we've got to ask ourselves the same questions again, don't we? Do I walk the talk? Do you say you love Jesus? Do you say you love Jesus and does your life show that? Through your obedience to His Word and what He calls you to do and how He calls you to live. And the person who loves Jesus, John says, walks as He walked. Looked at at verses 5b through 6 as we come to the end of our passage. He says, by this we may know, once again using that by this we may know, right? He wants us to know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. In other words, John is saying if you want to be sure you are in him, in God, in Christ, then live as Jesus did. The phrase abide in him and in him are synonymous here. They essentially mean this intimate spiritual fellowship that the believer has with God through faith by the Spirit. To say we abide in him or are in him is to to speak of a continuous relationship with him, a a way of life. And John uses that characteristic by this we know formula to introduce really just another way of expressing the same test of obedience, but with a specific example and it's more, I think, than just simple obedience to his commands. It means if we say we are in him, we must walk as Jesus did. Now, walk in Bible speak means how you live your life. And here it, it refers to living our lives with Jesus as our example to imitate. John says, we're going to say, if we're going to say we abide in him, we ought to live like he lived. And now, none of us, none of us, can be perfectly sinless or obedient as Jesus was. Perfection for you and I does not come in our earthly life. It comes with glory when we go to be with the Lord or the Lord returns. But it is a higher standard than mere obedience, I think, in this sense. Jesus was perfectly obedient to the Father to the point of his own suffering and death. He did the will of the Father even when it was hard. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Father, if it's your will, take this cup from me. But what? Not my will, but yours. And I think Jesus tells us what this should look like in our life. He says if, in Luke 9 23, if we're going to be his disciples, right? If we're going to follow him, we must die to ourselves. It means put aside our desires and wants, to sacrifice ourselves for others, to pick up our cross daily. And we follow him. We follow him. We, we follow his example and we follow his teachings, his commandments, his word. He's our example to follow if we're going to show ourselves to be in him. So, what about you? Do you show yourself to be in Him? Do you strive every day to be more and more like Christ in your life? To die to your desires and your wants and to live for Him and others as He did? If this is something you you struggle with, welcome to the club. But be encouraged be encouraged, because this is something God wants for you. In Romans 8, 29, Paul was writing to believers, and he wrote this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that they might be the firstborn among many brothers. You see, one of God's purposes in saving you was that you would be conformed to the image of his Son, that you would live like him more and more each day, that you would be like him more and more each day. And he pours out his grace on you to do that through his spirit. And God is always faithful, always faithful to his promises. And he tells us in Philippians 1.6 that he will finish the work that he began in you. All right, we're gonna wrap up. So in John 2, 1 through 6 this morning, John gave us three truths that give believers assurance that they can have fellowship with God even when they sin, even when sometimes they don't walk in the light. That when we sin, we have an advocate in Jesus the righteous who pleads our cause before the Father based on his righteousness and not ours. That his death on the cross His atoning sacrifice satisfied the holy and just wrath of God. His anger towards us for our sin reconciled us to him and gave us peace with him. That he is the only sacrifice that is sufficient to accomplish this and reconcile us to God. And to have these assurances, these promises, we must believe We must believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and eternal life and that the fruit of our faith, not the root of our faith, the fruit of our faith should show in our allegiance to Christ, a transformed heart and the life of obedience that strives every day to live as he did. So brothers and sisters, I'll exhort you one last time. Believe what God says about you. Believe it and live in the good of these assurances. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what great assurances you give us this morning that we can have fellowship with you in Christ, that Jesus, you intercede for us, pleading our cause before you, when we, before God the Father when we sin, and that, that you, Lord, our Heavenly Father, love us and are eager to forgive us that we can have fellowship with you because you're no longer angry with us as your children when we sin because Jesus, Jesus' blood has paid the penalty for our sins and assuaged your wrath towards us. We have peace with you now. What blessed assurance, Father. What blessed assurance. And Father, I ask that you would help each of us here today to walk in the good of these truths in our lives. Help us to walk in the light and to keep your commandments, Lord. That we show ourselves to know you, to love you, Lord, and to have fellowship with you. And when we stumble, and we will, please bring to mind these assurances and to transform us more and more into the image of your Son. And Father, we know that these assurances are only for those who are trusting in Jesus for salvation. So if there's anyone here this morning who is not trusting in the Lord for the forgiveness of their sins and eternal life, I pray, I pray this morning you would soften their heart to the effectual call of the gospel so that these assurances would be theirs too. That Jesus, your son, lived a perfect life of obedience and sinlessness, the life that we cannot live. And that he died on the cross for sins of death. We could not die. And that on the third day he rose from the dead, showing that his sacrifice was sufficient to pay the penalty for sin and satisfy your just and holy wrath against us. That he is seated in heaven at your side and will come again in glory. Father, we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.